Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Well, we finally reached the end of our 500 class. Thanks to all those of you who listened to all 14 previous lectures, and this is now number 15, where we'll get to look at a number of 20th century American groups. Sadly, because of the scope of this class, we're not able to cover the 20th century in any kind of an exhaustive or thorough manner. Instead, I just focus on some of the groups that, uh, in my own context, in America, are of interest, including Christian Science, the Evangelicals, Plymouth Brethren, uh, who give birth to the Dispensationalist Movement, and then Pentecostals, as well as a number of the more prominent non-denominational groups, Scientology, the Moonies, and uh, certainly megachurches. After all, we have to end on Joel Osteen, don't we? since this class is called 500 from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. It's a whirlwind, I'll be honest, but it should help you make some interesting connections between present-day Christian groups and their past. Here now is Lecture 15 of 500 from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen, Episode 132, 20th Century American Christianity. Number 15, the 20th Century American Christianity. Starting off, I want to talk about Christian science, although it's something that started in the 1800s. I want to mention it at the outset because it is a group that is around in the 20th century, and so I want to mention that and then talk about the Plymouth Brethren before I get into talking about the Pentecostals. Pentecostals is probably the the place we'll spend the most time, the, the Pentecostals and this awakening period, also called the Jesus Movement, those two. But I just want to mention a few things before that and then a few little things after it so that I can try to handle the 20th century in 45 minutes, okay? Doesn't that sound like fun? Okay, so Christian Science was founded in 1866 by Mary Baker Eddy. And it was a woman who had experienced healing from back pain after studying the Gospels. She devoted her life to studying healing, and in 1875, she published her findings in Science and Health. Her idea is that God is the only reality. Matter, sickness, and evil are illusions. Healing comes as people recognize true reality. And then it was in 1879 that she founded the first Church of Christ scientist in Boston. The church claims over 50,000 testimonies of healings, and in the early 20th century, it had major growth, but then it declined towards the end of the 20th century. Services are about an hour long. They include readings from the King James Version of the Bible, hymns, prayer. They have two readers, no clergy. They read from Eddie's book, Science and Health, and the other reader reads from the Bible. They have Wednesday night meetings, and that's a time for them to share testimonies. And they have Christian science reading rooms spread around the country. Current membership is between 85,000 and 400,000, which is is quite a a gap, but it's 
That's what happens when I have multiple sources giving me different numbers. It's not as bad as when we get to the Moonies, which when we get to them, their numbers, I, I really don't have any idea how many there are. But it's between a few hundred thousand and a few million. But, so this is, this is where we're at for Christian science. I, I wanted to focus on America this time with you rather than global Christianity in the 20th century just because there was no way to fit it all in. So I'm not going to mention important groups like the Orthodox Christians. There are 300 million of these people. Uh, there are Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox. They're all over the world, but they're concentrated more in the East, and many of them also live in America throughout the 20th century and in the 21st century. But I, I, they're, they're more of a group that I would cover in the first thousand years of Christianity uh, rather than in the last 500. So I haven't mentioned the Orthodox. So if you're Orthodox and listening to this, I'm sorry about that. But we're not going to mention you here either. There are some African-initiated churches that total up to about 30 million people during the 20th century uh, that I'm also not going to cover. And there's a born-again movement called Word of Life in China, which people estimate to be around 20 million people strong. So I'm not going to talk about any of those things because I just have time to focus on American Christianity. And I'm going to be talking about the evangelicals. And I realize that this is a term that's bandied about and that probably many people would not be able to define. So I'm just going to mention a definition for it taken from the National Association of Evangelicals. I figure they would know what their own word means. And so it's these four, these four beliefs. One is that they believe the need for everyone to have a born-again experience, an actual conversion where someone turns away from sins, experiences the forgiveness. Number two, the engagement in missionary and social reform efforts. Number three, obedience to the Bible as ultimate authority. And number four, sacrifice of Christ on the cross as a central focus. They call that crucicentrism uh, or something like that. The idea that the cross of Christ is the central part of Christian theology. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say evangelicals throughout this. Okay? There are plenty of Christians who believed in those four things before the 20th century. And... There are plenty during the 20th century, but they kind of pick up that, that name more as a defining mark. But before we get into the Pentecostals and other evangelicals, I want to mention the Plymouth Brethren. The Plymouth Brethren have about a million people today, and they began by this man in Dublin, Ireland in 1827, John Nelson Darby, who lived from 1800 to 1882. And he espoused a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. That's the idea that Jesus comes back before the great tribulation and takes the people of God out of the scene so that the rest of the world will, would experience the tribulation. This is one aspect of the belief system that came to be called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism then, although it was originated with Darby, and some of his associates, was popularized by C.I. Schofield in 1909 when he put out the Schofield Reference Bible. And in 1909, when E.W. Bullinger came out with the Companion Bible, he, he started it in 1909. This is a, a Bible with notes in it teaching this belief system. And that Bible wasn't finished until 1922, after he had already died. Some of his uh, associates finished it. 
Furthermore, Dallas Theological Seminary professor Lewis Chafer in 1948 came out with a series of volumes called Systematic Theology in which he taught dispensationalism. And then, of course, in the 1970, very uh, high-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate named Hal Lindsey popularized this idea of dispensationalism and Jesus coming to take people out before the tribulation comes. And then last of all, just to mention, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in 1995 produced the 12-volume series called Left Behind. And this was uh, kind of the, the high point for this idea that originated in the 1800s in Dublin, Ireland with uh, Nelson Darby, John Nelson Darby. Anyhow, back to Darby. He thought the Church of England was corrupted. He didn't like all of the dissenters and separatists and wanted to solve the divisiveness. Now, this is a theme that you, you see a lot in the 1800s and again in the 1900s. What's the deal with all this divisiveness? How can we, how can we unify? How can we bring Christian groups together? Um, how can we somehow reimagine a way to think about Christianity so that it's not so sectarian or split apart and fragmented? And so what he did is he decided he would meet together in the name of the Lord without reference to a denomination. So late 1800s, or sorry, earlier 1800s, yeah, 1827, 1831, he began the first meeting in England at a place called Plymouth. And that is the place where they like to call themselves brethren. And so probably much to his chagrin, his group became known as the denomination Plymouth Brethren. And uh, although that was certainly not what he intended. In 1845, the assembly at Plymouth had a thousand people attending it, and they had certain distinctives. For example, they, they despised traditional symbols, so no crosses, uh, unembellished meeting rooms, no stained glass. They did not like the idea of membership. What matters is who is written in the Lamb's Book of Life in Heaven, not who's enrolled in your membership at the, the headquarters of the denomination. They didn't believe in clergy. They thought all believers were priests, the priesthood of all believers. This is something Luther had taught as well, uh, but he did believe in clergy. And uh, it's interesting, though, that the Plymouth Brethren will have elders, and sometimes they support a full-time worker, but they're not clergy, right? Weekly communion is a separate meeting from the worship service, and the, the weekly communion for Plymouth Brethren has more of a Quaker feel, where it's whoever's led by the Spirit to say a word or initiate the singing of a hymn that people would know, uh, and then stand up and then take communion. So that's the Plymouth Brethren. Moving on then to the Pentecostals, we start our story with the Holiness Movement and Asa Mahan, who lived from 1799 to 1889. The Holiness Movement is the, the, a movement that came out of the Methodists with John Wesley, and that then le, uh, led into the Pentecostal movement. Okay, so it's sort of the, the bridging gap between Methodists and Pentecostals, who you probably wouldn't put together in the same idea or in your mind in the same thought. But anyhow, Asa Mahan built on Wesley's understanding of sin as voluntary transgression of a known law, and he advocated the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Christian perfectionism was based on Wesley's 1766 book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Now, this is not the idea that you don't make mistakes or you never sin, but it's the idea that you 
are characterized by total consecration and sanctification. It's not sinlessness necessarily, but it's a strong emphasis on holy living, not making excuses for your behavior and stuff like that. And this is what we call the holiness movement, big in America uh, throughout the 1800s. In 1835, he became the first president of Oberlin College in Ohio, and he convinced them of abolitionism. And that was the first school to admit students of all races in the United States, and they were influential in the Underground Railroad as well at this college in Ohio. After Asa Mahan, Charles Finney took over that same school, Oberlin in Ohio, and he was a leader in the Second Great Awakening. If you remember, I had spoken about that when Barton Stone and the Cane Ridge Revival broke out in 1801. Charles Finney was a revival preacher in upstate New York and Manhattan, and he also advocated Christian perfectionism. And he took over Oberlin after Mahan. The third main person in this holiness movement to mention is Phoebe Palmer, who lived from 1807 to 1874. She grew up Methodist and then took an interest in the writings of John Wesley, read his books, and suddenly started to try to devote herself to living a more holy life. In 1837, she claimed she had experienced entire sanctification. And her family soon experienced this after. The idea came that she should teach others how to have the same experience. And she led Tuesday night meetings called the Meeting for the Promotion of Holiness in her home for women alone. And then in 1839, opened it up to men. And at that time, a lot of Methodists, bishops, theologians, and ministers would come to her meeting to hear what she had to say. Uh, she became an itinerant preacher with her husband and visited churches, camp meetings, and conferences promoting this repentance, holiness living style. She drew strength from Wesleyan denominations that were considered lukewarm and worldly. But the thing I want to focus on as far as this holiness movement goes is this idea of a second experience where someone gets to a new level with God. Okay, so the first experience would be conversion. And then later on, Phoebe Palmer gets this uh, second experience, experience of entire sanctification. The Pentecostals pick that up, and they, call, they associate that with speaking in tongues as a second blessing. So, but before we get to the Pentecostals, in 1881, the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, was founded. And then in 1895, the Church of the Nazarene was founded, both from this holiness movement, uh, groups that exist to this day. Next, we have to talk about Charles Parham, because it was during, uh, in his ministry, when people first started speaking in tongues, the uh, first speaking in tongues of the Pentecostal movement happened with Charles Parham. He was a holiness preacher. He formulated the doctrine of initial evidence. He said that speaking in tongues indicated one had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 1900, he opened Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. In 1901, during a service, a woman asked for prayer and the laying out of hands to be filled with the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues. Parham began speaking in tongues a few days later. This is not so recent. I mean, this is 1901. Uh, when this happens. Parham began in 1905 a Bible school in Houston. He ended up moving and going to Houston, which leads us to William Seymour, who is one of Parham's students. So you have the initial breaking out of tongues with Parham, but it's not until William Seymour that we have really the Pentecostal movement beginning. William Seymour 
was one of Parham's students, an African-American, who in 1906 went down to Los Angeles to Azusa Street and in an old Methodist church began having a revival that featured speaking in tongues. And this movement or revival lasted until 1915. Now, what's interesting about this is that even though it's all in one location, it's in a metropolitan location with lots of travelers coming in from all over the world. So people would travel to L.A., they'd hear about this Azusa Street revival, they'd visit it, they'd hear the speaking in tongues, and then they'd go back to their own countries, bringing this idea with them. And so it spread without Seymour having to go very many places uh, to do that, at least early on. Now, sometimes cessationists, those are the people that believe manifestation of the Holy Spirit, or gifts of the Holy Spirit ha have ceased. They, they will sometimes point to Pentecostals as the origin of speaking in tongues. But this is not the case. In, uh, as early as the, the second century, Irenaeus mentions it. But we're not, that's before 500 years ago, so we're not going there. Uh, but in the 17th century, there, the early Quakers were said to speak in new tongues as the Lord gave utterance. In the 18th century, Shakers worshiping with singing, dancing, shaking, and shouting, and speaking with new tongues and prophesying. In the 19th century, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were both said to have spoken in tongues. And so 20th century, 1901, speaking in tongues is, is not necessarily a new thing. What's new about it is that it's part of this whole holiness movement and revivalism that spreads and really challenges people and grows in a big way, whereas the Quakers and Shakers had not grown that much, either of them. The Pentecostals fit in with the fundamentalists because they also believed that in the, the fundamentals the fundamentalists believe in that, uh, that I listed out for you before, but they were rejected by them. For example, in 1928, the World Christian Fundamentals Association rejected the Pentecostals as true fundamentalists. One interdenominational group in Germany also condemned them, and that, they didn't retract that condemnation until 1995, when they said, oh, I guess the Pentecostals are with us. I guess they, they do believe the same as us about the Bible. In 2013, this is a very recent reference, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul put on a strange fire conference in which they condemned the charismatic movement as a whole. So this is still going on, this, this interplay between evangelicals and Pentecostals, some saying, hey, you're, you're the same as us, and others saying, no, you're different than us. The emphasis on rationalism that the fundamentalist has had was one of the reasons why the Pentecostals didn't really like them either. So there, there really are an independent movement in America. And what's interesting about them, as you can see from this picture, is that it was interracial from the start. I mean, these are the two founders, Charles Parham and William Seymour. And so it was interracial from the start, but it did end up splitting along racial lines before too long, and then you end up with Pentecostal groups that are either all white or all black rather than both combined, especially in the Jim Crow South. In 1913, there was a debate over baptism. Should baptism be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or should it be done in the name of Jesus Christ? That was the question they were trying to figure out. In 1916, the Assemblies of God said it should be in the Trinitarian formula because we believe in the Trinity. And about a quarter of them disagreed. They believed, they did not believe in the Trinity, though they did believe Jesus was God. And so they're called Jesus only or oneness Pentecostals. 
So that's the idea that Jesus just is the Father. They're the same thing. And that group left. So the Assemblies of God today is the largest Pentecostal group, 65 million, whereas Oneness Pentecostalism has about 6 million, and that's one of their main differences. There was a charismatic movement also in the 1960s that spread in Protestantism and Roman Catholic churches. Uh, but what, and what I want to focus on in the 1960s was the Jesus movement and perhaps a fourth great awakening. Now, the first great awakening happened hundreds of years before. The second great awakening in the 1800s. Some people call the last half of the 1800s the third great awakening, although that's disputed. And so calling 1960 to 1980 the fourth great awakening is even more disputed. Okay, so I'm not trying to be controversial and label things in a weird way. But I am saying that something happened between 1960 and 1980. And I, whether or not it qualifies as a great awakening or not, I'll leave to you to judge. But just a couple of things. First of all, we had the Jesus movement and the hippies, the, the hippie countercultural movement. The Jesus movement was a group of people who were fr from the hippie countercultural movement who were called the Jesus people or Jesus freaks. And they were the ones who were Christian within the hippie movement at large. They had a restorationist theology, which is the idea that you want to return to the lifestyle of early Christians. This is something also that had happened in the 1800s with the Church of Christ, with the Adventist groups. They wanted to return to first century Christianity. Um, in the Jesus movement, they've tended to view all established churches as having fallen away, and they wanted to return to simple living. In fact, they began a lot of communes during that time. And in, for example, the 1970s, the Shiloh Youth Revival Centers had over 100,000 people in 175 communal houses. There was a strong belief in miracles and healing, faith, and prayer. There also a strong belief in evangelism and millennialism. Millennialism is the idea that Jesus is coming back to establish a, a reign on earth for a thousand years. These are all characteristic beliefs of this Jesus movement. Another main, main component of the Jesus movement in the 1960s to 1980s was music and music festivals. And so during this time we have the beginning of a lot of Christian artists and Christian uh, festivals that attracted a lot of people. For example, in 1972, there was a week-long gathering in Dallas, Texas, that some people would call the Christian Woodstock. And it attracted 80,000 young people, and it brought Jesus people, hippies, together with young people from traditional Christianity. And they kind of recognized they weren't all that different. And it was sort of the high watermark of the Jesus movement, after which it, it kind of receded into the background. During this uh, 1972 week-long gathering in Dallas, Texas, it was organized by very traditionalist groups like Campus Crusade. And it featured the preaching of Bill Bright and Billy Graham. And so now we have Jesus people getting exposed to excited young people who are not countercultural, but they are Christian, and mainstream Christian evangelists and speakers who obviously did have a passion for what they believed in. Other, now, so that's the Jesus movement aspects, but other events also occurred during this 20-year this period from 1960 to 1980. And again, I'm not doing 
all of American history. I'm just focusing on Christianity and how that developed during this time. I realize there's a little war called Vietnam and all the rest, you know, but we're not going to get into that. We're going to focus. And there were two world wars before this, right, in the 20th century. But that's kind of a different focus. So let's jump into it. One of the things that happened during this period is mainline Protestant churches lost members and influence. And at the same time, conservative denominations like Southern Baptists and the Missouri Synod Lutherans grew rapidly, as well as what I just mentioned, this countercultural movement occurring. There was an emphasis also on this, during this period on a personal relationship with Jesus. Have you ever heard of that expression before? Still a very popular expression. This is Bill Bright, one of the preachers at that crusade or that movement in Texas in 1972. Another thing that happened is we had the uh, rise of megachurches. I'm going to return to megachurches because I called this class 500 from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. So we have to... We have to end with Joel Osteen. I'll get there eventually. But the, the megachurch movement starts out in this period of uh, 1960s, 1980s. Also, there's the growth of parachurch organizations. Do you know what I mean when I say parachurch? It means to come alongside the church. These aren't churches themselves, but groups that come alongside to help the church in some aspect. So, for example, in 1941, we get InterVarsity Fellowship happening in America, starting in America by Stacy Woods. It started uh, from Canada, it came to America. This is a group that is still very strong on college campuses around the country that gives Christians on college campuses a place to meet and a place to do Bible study. In 1950, Billy Graham founded the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And he took Christianity as mainstream as you could with radio, TV, newspaper, column, magazine, and of course, huge crusades where he would uh, sell out big outdoor seating areas and pack them with people and do these crusades and preach to them. In 1951, Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew, C-R-U, started at the University of California by Bill Bright. In 1977, James Dobson founded Focus on the Family another very well-known parachurch organization. He's not the pastor of a church. He is the leader of an organization that is popularizing certain views that go alongside or, or partner with the, the church. Also during this period, you have the rise of the religious right, and people start to see conservative Christians as a political force. Now, at this, it's interesting, at the same time that all this is happening, all this, the Jesus movement, and uh, all these other groups coming in and really growing rapidly, you have secularization developing in America, where in the universities, which I had shared with you before, the, the, the philosophical criticisms of Christianity, the biblical criticisms of Christianity had won the day. And the universities had become more and more secular, producing a, uh, an educated elite that was more and more secular. So, so you have almost like a revival and a secularization at the same time, in the same place. And that causes a lot of friction, doesn't it? Also, you have three other major figures during this period. You have Martin Luther King Jr., 1963, preaches, I have a dream. Billy Graham is doing these crusades during the same period, growing immensely. And Pope John Paul II, 
who becomes Pope in 1978 and is very influential with Catholics in America and especially in Poland during the Solidarity Movement in the fall of the USSR and communism. And so these, these three leaders, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King, and John Paul II are all also during this period. And then the last thing is the growth of non-denominational churches. And so this is not something we really have much of before this. It's something that comes out of this. Now, I know that uh, Darby tried to found the Plymouth Brethren as a non-denominational church. And I would say Barton Stone also tried to found a non-denominational church. So maybe there are some precedents or, or antecedents to this. But we get this non-denominationalism movement occurring at this time from 1960 to 1980. And I'm going to give you just a few examples of that. I'm going to mention the Calvary Chapel, uh, the Association of Vineyard Churches, and the Way International as three examples, and the Christian Missionary Alliance, four examples. Okay, there's lots more. There's lots more. But Calvary Chapel, so I'm going to go kind of fast, but Calvary Chapel has about 25 million people today. It's the largest non-denominational denomination in existence. And they call themselves a fellowship of churches not a denomination. They have over a thousand congregations worldwide. They started in 1965 with Chuck Smith, who became the pastor of a 25-person four-square gospel church, and then in 1968 broke away and formed Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. He claimed he had heard God speak to him, telling him that he was to change his name to the shepherd because the Lord was going to make him the shepherd of many flocks. And so in 1968, he broke away, started his own group. By 1969, Calvary Chapel became the hub of the Jesus movement. And this happened partially because his daughter's boyfriend was John Higgins Jr., who started the Shiloh Youth Revival Centers, which is the largest Jesus freak movement of all these communes during the, the period and the fact that he got Lonnie Frisbee on board, who joined and coordinated outreach on the beaches with a focus on miracles and was also very famous uh, during that period. A third major factor in uh, Calvary Chapel's growth is the fact that music was very important. They're the ones that founded Maranatha Music uh, to promote music, and they're the ones that had services first resembling rock concerts. Calvary musicians, for example, include Jeremy Camp, P.O.D., Switchfoot, and Phil Wickham. Some of those names maybe you've heard of. They were strong believers in miracles. Uh, they had House of Miracles, multiple houses of miracles. These are communes that you could move into. In 1982, a man named John Wimber, uh, Calvary Chapel pastor, left and became the leader of the Vineyard Movement. So we'll go look at the Vineyard Movement in a minute here. But the Calvary Chapel believes in uh, standard evangelical uh, beliefs, but then they also consider themselves as a middle ground between fundamentalism and Pentecostalism, where they're going to embrace the rationality and the Bible-basedness of the fundamentalists and the experiential aspect, belief that God can do, still do miracles of the Pentecostals at the same time, uh, but not to the same degree as the Pentecostals. They are pre-tribulationists. They believe in the dispensational views of Darby and Schofield. And in fact, Smith himself prophesied that Jesus would come back in 1981. 
40 years after Israel had become a nation. And some left the church due to that failed prophecy. They're very strong into expository preaching, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, Genesis all the way to Revelation. And they believe in the gifts of spirits, but they don't allow uninterpreted tongues. And they have a strong leadership based on what they call the Moses model, which is to say the senior pastors are not allowed to be challenged. They have a Bible college in Marietta, California, and a radio program. I'm going to jump over to the uh, Vineyard Movement, uh, which is 15 million at present. And that started in 1975, again, right in this 20-year gap. Ken Gullickson started the Vineyard in Hollywood. And it was popular among actors and musicians, including Bob Dylan. In 1982, John Wimber took over. And he was a low-key, low-pressure, come-as-you-are environment. Well, he wasn't an environment, but he provided a low-key, low-pressure, come-as-you-are environment. He wore casual clothing, and that extended for preachers and everyone else. He was anti-dogmatic. The vineyard gave equal time to worship and Bible study, significant time to prayer and one-on-one ministry, and they adopted contemporary Christian music right away, when most churches are still using hymnals. No membership records and no procedures. Sunday service and weekday home groups are basically the core. If you go to those, then you're a member, or whatever that means. And if not, then you're not. You figure it out. Very decentralized organization of local churches. And this group had a controversy breakout in 1994 called the Toronto Blessing, which involved large crowds, lengthy meetings, and disorderly manifestations of the Holy Spirit, including laughing, crying, and shaking, along with speaking in tongues and prophecy, which they had already accepted, but these other laughing in the Spirit and so on came under criticism, and they eventually um, released the Toronto Church from the Vineyard Movement over this controversy. Next, I want to talk about the Christian Missionary Alliance, which, if you can tell from this picture, started in the 1800s. 1887, and uh, a gentleman, Albert Simpson, a Presbyterian clergyman, started as a missionary society. Why am I talking about this, even though we're in the 20th century? Because it had a major influence on many influential 20th century Christians, as I'll list in just a minute. But anyhow, this Christian and Missionary Alliance today numbers about 4 million. They originally had strong ties to the Pentecostal movement, In 1912, it emerged as its own group over a controversy about speaking in tongues and worship style. And after Albert Simpson died in 1919, they moved away from Pentecostalism. And they rejected that tongues is necessary to indicate being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you didn't speak in tongues, they believed you still could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not that they're against tongues, per se. In 1965, the churches adopted an established statement of faith and became a denomination. Okay, so between, you know, 1887 when he starts the Missionary Society, 1912 when it becomes a group, it's still more of a parachurch organization until 1965 when these churches that are loosely connected adopt a statement of faith and become an official denomination. 1965. In 2014, their website says, rather than just a denomination intent on building its own kingdom, we are people who go. 
So you see they're kind of knocking the denominational label and emphasizing mission, even to this day. They have typical evangelical beliefs, but what I wanted to mention is that there are some very interesting people that came out of this movement. This is Felix Manilo, who founded Iglesia Ni Cristo, a biblical Unitarian church based out of the Philippines with an international presence and 10 million members worldwide. Also in America, in Albany. I checked. A.W. Tozer, very famous author, came out of the Christian and Missionary Alliance movement. In 1948, he produced a book called The Pursuit of God, along with many other books. Paris Reedhead, a famous missionary preacher of the 1960s, mid-1960s, who preached the sermon, Ten Shekels and a Shirt. Billy Graham was first licensed as a youth pastor by the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And Ravi Zacharias, author and apologist, taught at the Christian and Missionary Alliance Training School in Nyack, New York. All right, now we move on to the Way International as the fourth during this period. Now, uh, like the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the Way International began before this period I'm talking about, but it grew the most during this period between the 1960s and 1980s. Under the Jesus Movement, train of thought where you have music festivals and so on, we can, we can locate Joyful Noise, which was a musical group with the Way International that traveled around in these big tents and had these music festivals throughout America. But in 1942, Victor Paul Wierl began the radio program called Vesper Chimes. He was ordained by the Evangelical and Reformed Church in 1941, and in 1957 officially left his church. In 1947, he renamed the radio program The Chimes Hour Youth Caravan, and in 1955, incorporated as The Way. It's a restorationist, he had a restorationist focus. In other words, just listen to this. He claimed that God had spoken to him audibly and that he would teach him the word of God rightly divided as it had not been known since the first century. That's restorationism. Restorationism is the idea you're trying to get back to first century Christianity. Same thing in the Churches of Christ, same thing in the group I just mentioned a little minute ago, I don't remember which one it was. A very common idea that the church has gotten off track and so we have to return to original Christianity. He had uh, a number of classes and he had some, some influence from J.E. Stiles, who was from the Assemblies of God, and E.W. Bullinger, who was a dispensationalist from the Plymouth Brethren movement which related to his classes having a strong orientation towards manifesting the Holy Spirit and teaching dispensationalism. For example, you have the Power for Abundant Living class, which is a foundational class for new members, the Intermediate class, the Advanced class, and several others. From 1970 to 1995, the Rock of Ages was a major festival that people would go to that had between 5,000 and 20,000 who attended it. And it was a time to welcome home missionaries called WOW Ambassadors and send out new missionaries. In 1969, the Way Corps Leadership Training Program was founded. And around 1971, I wasn't sure of the exact date, the American Christian Press, which is the publishing arm, began uh, producing books. For example, in 1983, they came out with the Aramaic New Testament. Uh, their distinctive doctrines include, now I'm not going to mention all the things that they agree with other Christians with, I'm just focusing on the distinctives here. 
The idea that all Christians can and should speak in tongues. They're biblical Unitarian. The 1975 book, Jesus Christ is Not God, emphasized what you would think, that Jesus is not God. Uh, they believe in the sleep of the dead until the second coming. That spirit baptism had replaced water. Once saved, always saved. Prosperity of all believers. Mark and avoid. This is the idea that if somebody in the way is marked, then other, others should shun that person. And then the other one is that people should be completely debt-free, including no car loans, mortgages, or school loans. The Way International still exists, but I have no idea how many people are in it because they don't have any members. And they don't produce a list um, or an indication of that. Another thing I, I, I thought about mentioning, I can't really go into too much detail on, is this 10-year period they call the culture wars from 1990 to 2000 or 1990s to 2000s, where this is a book by James Davison Hunter called Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. And the subtitle is Making Sense of the Battles Over the Family, Art, Education, Law, and Politics. This is the idea that certain hot-button defining issues popularized Americans along ideology, not religion, ethnicity, class, or political affiliation. And the issues are listed as abortion, gun politics, separation of church and state, privacy, recreational drug use, homosexuality, and censorship. I'm not really going to get into this, but I've got, I believe I have a quote in there for you uh, if you're interested in that. Other 20th century groups of, of note include Herbert W. Armstrong, who began the Worldwide Church of God, a group that later changed its name to Grace Communion International, today having about 42,000 members in 90 countries. Herbert Armstrong founded a radio ministry called the Radio Church of God. He had come out of the Church of God's seventh day. He was ordained by them in 1931. In 1956, he published a booklet called 1975 in Prophecy. Now, he published that in 1956, so you've got plenty of time for things to happen. Uh, but the booklet claimed a nuclear war, enslaving of mankind, and the return of Christ, which did not happen. So, like I said before, with, with the Millerites, the William Miller movement, we don't set dates. We just don't do that. And so uh, a number of people left the movement at that time, but it, it, it did continue to grow. In uh, 1986, the doctrines, after there was a, a, a power struggle, after the leader had died, the denomination's doctrines changed to be compatible with mainline evangelicalism. But uh, just to mention a few of their distinctive doctrines before they changed to be more mainline, he came out of an Adventist group, so he believed in the sleep of the dead, the return of Christ to establish the kingdom. He was a restorationist, believed that you have to get back to, once again, first century Christianity, the church had been corrupt. And he taught that his church, the Worldwide Church of God, was the only true church. Everyone else was a heretic. He was an authoritarian, and yeah, this is the one I was thinking of. Pastors could announce someone was disfellowshipped during a Sabbath service. So they, they practiced keeping the law of Moses and the Sabbath, but your name could get called out during a service, and that meant you were kicked out of the church and everyone would shun you. Also, people had to pay three tithes. So that's not 10%, it's not 20%, it's 30%. And this resulted in a headquarters in Pasadena, California, estimating at $300 million worth of assets. 
during the time of this movement, not to mention several mansions and a lot of luxury for the leadership. They taught a doctrine called British Israelism, which I wouldn't be surprised if you've never heard of, but it's, it's an idea that white Anglo-Saxon peoples of United States, UK, and Western Europe were the descendants of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. And today they're called Grace Communion International, and like I said, they're, they've changed a lot of their beliefs to be more mainstream. Scientology has between, this is my favorite number, between 100,000 and 8 million members. How's that for a range? Scientology was founded in 1953 by science fiction author L. Ron Hubbard. He founded the Church of Scientology in Camden, New Jersey. In 1955, and this is genius, I was, I was thinking about this move he made in 1955, and it's, it's really brilliant. He launched what he called Project Celebrity. He made a list of 63 famous people, and he told his people to go out and convert them, which is why today we think of Scientologists like Tom Cruise and John Travolta as being spokespeople for this uh, belief system. Some of their uh, beliefs include people are immortal beings who have forgotten their true nature. They originally lived on other planets before Earth, and they need spiritual rehabilitation called auditing to re-experience painful events of the past in order to free themselves of ongoing effects. Almost sounds like inner healing. And they charge a fee for study materials and auditing sessions. And that's another reason why they're controversial, because they are tax-exempt, but yet they're charging fees. They insist that, insist that they are donations, uh, not fees. They're one of the most controversial new religious movements in the 20th century, and they tend to use litigation against their critics. Next, we have Sun Myung Moon, who started a group called the Unification Church, popularly known as the Moonies. The Moonies. In 1954, he started this group in South Korea. So why are we talking about it in 20th century America? Well, it was quite a force in America during the 20th century. Today, it's hard, again, it's hard for me to tell how many, but the estimates are something like maybe 2 million worldwide of the Moonies. In 1966, Moon published Divine Principle, and this book came to be held at the same status as Scripture. In 1973, they came out with an English translation, again, during the same period of great growth and, and religious interest in America, 1973, the English uh, version comes out. Some of their beliefs include communication with the spirits of the deceased, the idea that spirits, dead people, can return to earth and cooperate with living people to expiate for sins. Uh, Moon said that he was the second coming of Christ, and that he and his wife, Hak Jahan, are the true family, the parents of humankind. And they were known for having mass weddings. And bless, the arranged weddings, weddings that he would preside over and bless the people in the West Coast, but also in uh, Korea. Next we have mega churches. Mega, mega, mega churches, churches, churches. I estimated three million people or so in the United States go to a mega church. But that's honestly a total guess. It could be more. They're typically Protestant churches 
But in order to be a mega church, you have to have 2,000 people or more in average weekend attendance. Using that qualification, we have 1,300 of them in the United States. Now, there are also around the world 3,000 Catholic churches that would qualify as megachurches, but since they're Catholics, typically we don't call them megachurches. But anyhow, back to the megachurches in the United States, Protestant churches, 50 of them exceeded 10,000 in weekend attendance. That's 50 churches in the United States that on a weekend have more than 10,000 people come. I'm just going to list the top three for you because I just said 50 of them have 10,000 or more. So there's a lot of these, 1,300 of these, these megachurches. Some of them are the size of denominations, you know. But I'm just going to list the, the top three. Three, then two, then one. You ready? All right. Rick Warren. He is a Southern Baptist, and he has 38,789 members, and 22,000 of them show up every week. He has 12 sites where his sermon is broadcast, plus, of course, online. Number two, lifechurch.tv. Has anybody ever heard of them? Lifechurch.tv? A couple people. Uh, this is Craig Groschel. He's an uh, evangelical covenant church, and he has, like I said, number two, 41,000 in weekly attendance. That's almost twice as much as Rick Warren in Saddleback. Now, LifeChurch.tv, you may know if you have a uh, tablet or a smartphone because they produce the YouVersion Bible app, which is the most famous Bible app that we have. And so these 15 sites broadcast the sermon of this Pastor Greg, Craig Groschel. I would say Groschel, but he probably doesn't want a German pronunciation. All right. And then last of all, Smiley himself, Lakewood church in Houston, Texas. Here we have Joel Osteen. He is non-denominational and he gets 43,500 every week to his church and he has only one site. So rather than doing it like Groschel in 15 sites or Warren in 12 sites, Osteen does it all right there in the old... Uh, sports dome that he purchased and renovated and built five stories onto and everything else. I told you we would get to Joel Osteen. I am very satisfied looking at his smiling face right there. Um, <laughs> sadly, we don't have time to go into great detail describing all of his beliefs and uh, how he's accused of the prosperity gospel and how he says he's not really doing that and how people ask him, why don't you ever talk about the devil or sin or Satan or hell? And he's like, well, I just try to focus on the positive things about Christianity and get enough of that other stuff. And, you know, he's got that big smile and uh, produces, I think, five number one bestsellers on the New York Times list. We don't have time to get into any of that. But I do want to mention that there is someone else, someone that could eat Joel Osteen's breakfast for him. And that is the Yodo... Let me uh, see if I can spell this out for you, because it's not Yoda like the Star Wars guy. Y-O-I-D-O, -O, full gospel church in South Korea. Guess how many members they have? I don't know if I put it in your notes. 830,000 members in 2007. So Joel had 43,000 
in weekly attendance. There's a church that has 830,000. Now, I don't know how many go every week, but that is, that's almost a million people, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's not in America, but I had to throw it in there. There are also some major criticisms of megachurches. Uh, one is that they have kind of the Walmart effect. Walmart moves into town. What happens to all the mom-and-pop convenience stores? Go down the tubes. Home Depot moves into town. What happens to all the hardware stores, mom-and-pop hardware stores? Go down the tubes, right? A megachurch moves into town. What happens to all the regular churches that were there, non-mega churches? All their people want to go to the big, fancy megachurch now. So there's a, a lot of criticisms against them for that. They're criticized for focusing too much on entertainment, for using corporate business models, and the government doesn't like that they generate millions of dollars and yet are tax-exempt. And so uh, there have been some investigations by the uh, United States Senate into megachurch uh, finances. I want to end this session by looking at a recent survey. This is the Pew survey from 2008. They interviewed 35,000 American adults, 18 and over. And this is what they found for 21st century, present-day America. Uh, number one, in 26.3%, we have evangelical Protestant churches. And then number two... Well, and I would actually... I would lump into that historically black churches. Honestly, I would, because... They're either Pentecostal or they're uh, associated with the Methodist. Well, I guess if they're associated with the Methodist, they would be mainline. Maybe that's why they're separate. But 26.3, or if you, if you combine it with the historically black churches, then it's like 30% uh, or more than 30% of Americans are these Bible-believing people that liberals would love to use the F word on, fundamentalist. Then you have the mainline Protestant churches, many of whom are from that liberal Protestant movement that I had spoken of before, and they're at 18%, but between those two, we've got the Catholics at 23% in the United States, uh, fueled mostly from uh, immigration, especially from uh, Spanish-speaking countries, but also from Asian countries as well. So we have evangelical Protestants, Catholics, mainline Protestant churches, historically black churches, and then everybody else is really small, except for 16% here are the secularists, unaffiliated. These are people who are saying, I just don't, I'm, I'm not into religion. I'm not affiliated with anybody. So those are the, those are the big ones. I'll mention some of these other ones just uh, for fun. I try to do them in order. 1.7%, uh, there are as many Mormons as there are Jews in America. And then under them, what's next here? Jehovah's Witnesses? Jehovah's Witnesses, 0.7%. As many Jehovah's Witnesses as there are Buddhists, 0.7%. And then we have the Orthodox Christians, which are the ones I told you I wasn't going to talk about. And the Muslims, only 0.6% in America as of 2008. Very small uh, group. And then the Hindus, probably mostly from India, 0.4%. So that's where we're at now. Thanks for listening. That's it for this class. I realize that some of you maybe wish that I had gone into more detail here. And who knows, maybe in the future, I can develop this into several more thorough lectures. And also, another major issue with this class that I presented here is that 
I didn't focus much on African Christianity, which has really its own story with respect to Ethiopia, which would be more of a first 500 years of Christian history. But then in the 1800s and 1900s, I mean, just incredible stuff happened in Africa with uh, missionaries and Christianization of several significant countries. But uh, alas, this class is far from perfect, but hopefully it helped you to get a grasp on uh, some of the broad strokes and focuses that w- w- will help you contextualize the rest of the information. So that's it for 500. Stay tuned for the next class. It'll probably be several weeks. Usually I take a break for a few weeks before putting out another class. And I just wanted to read out a couple of comments really quickly here. One is from Offscript number 40, which was called Roy Moore, Gay Wedding Cakes and White Evangelicals. Uh, Definitely our raciest (laughs) title of a Restitutio episode to date. And uh, we were working our way through a critical Washington Post article that was listing out problems with Christianity. We were uh, trying to listen to that and take it seriously and respond to it. Anyhow, John Guthrie made the point that Roy Moore was running for the U.S. Senate, not for governor. So uh, that's just a a minor correction there. Thanks, uh, John, for bringing that up. So there you have that. Also, Kim Magnuson says, not sure if I find that much wrong with the author's comments. One of the keys to Roy Moore's issue, and one I find rather common in many evangelical pushes, is his lack of admission, confession, and remorse when confronted with overwhelming evidence. Another disturbing thing was the willingness for many evangelicals to put their politics of this world above Jesus' teachings. Enjoyed the discussion. God's peace. Thanks, Kim, for writing in. And if you haven't yet listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. Uh, It's really such a helpful guide to what uh, secular folks and people coming from more of a liberal perspective, how they perceive Bible-believing Christians. And I think it's really important to come to grips with that and hear them where their critiques are valid and then be prepared to respond to them in a loving yet reasonable manner so that when the time comes and you're sharing your faith with somebody coming from this position, that you're able to you're able to make sense to them and also explain why Christ is so great, even if some of his followers are knuckleheads. Uh, but check that out and stay tuned for next week, where I have a I've gotten permission to play out this really great address by Mary Wilson of the Gospel Coalition, where she talks about some of the texts from the Old Testament that people sometimes call sexist, and she does a great job with that. So stay tuned for that. If you want to join your voice to the conversation, why not stop by today at restitutio.org. It's like restitution with no N, and you'll be able to find episodes. You just click on podcast there. You can scroll through to the episodes you want to comment on and add your voice to the mix. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. And remember... The truth has nothing to fear.